the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. If there's going to be harmony in the church and a spirit of unity in a congregation, people have to be properly motivated to do it. You understand that God is, is really concerned about our motivation. What is it that motivates us? Why should we be unified? I want you to understand it's not external rules. There's a lot of churches that, that have a whole list of rules on what you should do and what you shouldn't do and uh, all kinds of things. It's not externals. It's internals. There's proper motivations. There has to be some good, solid reasons why I should get along with others and not want to assert my own rights. Hello, I'm Peter Silseth, and you are listening to Verse by Verse. Benjamin Franklin is reported to have said at the beginning of the Revolutionary War, if we don't hang together, we shall each hang separately. He recognized the absolute need for unity when facing an adversary. As individual Christ followers and as a church body, we face a far more powerful enemy than King George of England. Yet we often see not only individual congregations torn apart, but entire denominations have split, often over unbelievably trivial issues. How do we guard against disunity in our churches? Pastor teacher Steve Kreloff will consider that today on Verse by Verse. Since 1981, Pastor Steve has been teaching and ministering at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. These daily radio Bible classes are a way for the rest of us to join in that learning experience. It is amazing how local churches can withstand withering persecution from the world and then crumble over something like where to put the piano. Why is that, and how can we protect ourselves from internal strife? Let's look at a basically healthy church which was struggling a little in this area of unity and see the cure that the Apostle Paul prescribed. Our text for today is the first two verses of Philippians chapter 2. Certain church in the city of Dallas, Texas, had a very serious problem with disunity, serious problem with division. The problem became so serious that each faction in this division actually filed a lawsuit against each other. This is a true story. And they filed a lawsuit claiming that the church property belonged to them. So the other side said it belongs to us, this side said it belongs to them, and the judge ruled that before the courts would deal with this problem, it had to go before the church courts, the denominational courts, to decide what would happen. And so it did. And the issue went before the highest authorities in the denomination. And eventually the church authorities awarded the church property to one of the factions, and the other side just broke off and started another church in the Dallas area. Now, tragically, the newspapers picked up on this, and they love things like this, and uh, they followed it, and they was in the papers in Dallas. And interesting thing is, upon investigating this story, they began to trace and discover where the trouble began, what, what caused this trouble. It was in the newspapers, too. Their research revealed 
that the trouble began when an elder at a church dinner received a smaller slice of ham than a child seated next to him. That's it. That's it. There's nothing more to the story. That's it. And can you imagine the newspaper headings, ham, the cause of division at church? Now, if it wasn't so tragic, that really would be humorous. A nothing item like, like ham could cause us. Now, we don't want to be naive. Obviously, there were some underlying problems and attitude problems, and ham was not the sole cause of it. But it's little nothing things like that that can get out of control. And you see, what we need to understand is that even a superficial comprehension of church history reveals that one of Satan's most effective weapons is to destroy the testimony of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ by using little nothing things like ham and problems that after a while people lose sight of what the real problem uh, was and, and how it started and it becomes personality clashes and conflicts and chaos. And Satan tries to do that and unfortunately he accomplishes that most of the time. In fact, the church wasn't even past infancy before division arose in it. In Acts chapter 6, we read that there were some people who complained. Certain widows, the the uh, Hebrew-speaking widows, they said, were, get, were getting taken care of in, in, ta- in having the food distribution, but the Greek-speaking widows were not. And so immediately at the infancy of the church, Satan had moved in and tried to destroy the effectiveness of the church of Jerusalem. One of the earliest church letters, the letter of James, recognizes that demonic activity is associated with division in the church. It doesn't just happen. In James chapter 3, James tells us in verse 13, verses 13 and following, he writes this, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom, but he's talking about this jealousy, is not that which comes down from above, but it's earthly, it's natural, it's demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. And so James tells us that disorder and and jealousy and strife in the church has to go back way beyond ham and things like that, but to the workings of Satan. The Apostle Paul is very familiar with division in the church. The Apostle Paul was concerned about disunity in the churches that either he founded or he wrote to. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he addresses this issue. In fact, that's one of the major problems that the Corinthians had. He writes in chapter 1, Verse 10, now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and there be no divisions among you, but you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people. There is a woman named Chloe who told him about this, that there are quarrels among you. Now, I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. Paul is saying, I'm hearing from people in your own church that there are divisions taking place. You've branched off into cliques and and heroes of the faith and superheroes and stars, and this ought not to be. You ought to be of one mind. You ought to be united. You ought to have a spirit of harmony. Paul wrote also to Romans chapter 13, verse 13. He speaks about strife and envy. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 4 addresses the same thing, conceit and envy in the church that leads to disunity. Now, 
you might ask yourself, why is that such a problem? Why is disunity such a major, major problem? Why would Satan be so interested in attacking a church at that area? Well, I'd like you to turn to John chapter 13, and we will get to Philippians, but I just want to set the stage for you. John chapter 13, and I want you to understand that Satan has a method behind this, that Satan has a a scheme to this. There is a reason for his madness in attacking the church in this area. John chapter 13, verse 35 in verse, actually it begins in verse 34, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, and he means by this love, this loving of one another, this actually laying down your life for the sake of the brethren. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. What Jesus is saying is that we have a legitimate testimony to the world when they can see tangible love between us. And let me put this into perspective. How is the world going to believe our message of God's love revealed in Christ's death if we who claim to have received this love can't even get along with one another? Do you understand? We lose all credibility. If if I'm witnessing to somebody about the love of God revealed in Christ Jesus, and this person happens to know that I pastor a church that people can't even get along amongst themselves who claim to be to be mastered by the love of God, then what credibility is the message? There is no credibility. It may be true, but they're not going to perceive it as true. Now, we need to be very, very honest about this. Believers often struggle to get along with other believers. Problems of forgiveness, problems of someone who offended someone else. And that is a serious problem because I want you to understand something. If you want to destroy the church, don't try to destroy it by outside persecution. That never destroys the church. Paul said, for me to die is gain. If you try to destroy the church by persecuting it, you will only strengthen the church. That is, that is the history of the church. That is the, the truths revealed in the word of God. You persecute the church. You bring up strife and power upon it from the outside. You will only strengthen it. But if you bring internal discord, you will destroy it. You will destroy it. And that's what Satan exactly wants to do. And uh, that's what the trap is that we fall into. And that's why unity and harmony need to be emphasized in a church because our testimony for Christ's sake is at stake. Now, I want you to understand something that's very, very helpful. The most dangerous and potentially dangerous situations is to have a healthy church where harmony exists. The potential there for disharmony is is more so uh, at that church than in other churches. And let me explain. In churches that are healthy, there tends to be a, a lot of people there who know what they believe, and they feel strongly about what they believe, and they're dogmatic about what they believe, and they are earnest and zealous about their beliefs. And the stronger you are in Christ, the more your beliefs matter to you, the more they mean something to you, the more you'll stand for them. And when you bring a lot of enthusiastic, zealous people who know what they believe and stand for what they believe, when you bring them together in a church, there is great potential and danger of a crashing of the minds and wills. The great danger that we face as a church, we don't have a problem of disunity. We don't have a problem of disharmony, but the potential for us to have that is greater than in most churches because of the strength of your understanding of the Word of God. 
And so the healthier the church is, and this is the paradox, the healthier the church is, the more dangerous it is, potentially dangerous for there to be a crashing of people who feel very strongly about issues and because they think they're right, they're going to crash with others. Now that brings us to, to the church of Philippians, the church at Philippi, because the church at Philippi was a very healthy church. And we've been studying about this church for a number of weeks now, and we know it's a healthy church. It was a warm church. I don't believe that Paul had the relationship of warmth and tenderness with any other church on the face of the earth, more so than with the Philippians. They are interested in him. They send a love offering to him. They send Epaphroditus to him. He loves them. He says, I pray for you every day. I pray for all of you. When I think about you, I rejoice. You warm my heart. I have joy. You're interested in the gospel. You've always been interested in me. I love you. You love me. I mean, tremendous tenderness and warmth in this church, a very healthy church. If we had background music like a drama, it would be starting to sound ominous right now. You see, while the Philippian church was a healthy church, they still had a little problem developing. We will see what it is and how Paul told them to deal with it after we greet those who have just tuned in. You are listening to Verse by Verse with Pastor Teacher Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Today we are exploring the subject of unity in the church. Why and how should we work for it? Disagreements in the church are inevitable. How we handle those disagreements, though, is a great indicator of spiritual maturity. Let's turn to Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, and see how Paul instructed some of the Philippian believers in better handling their disagreements. However, There are indications that there were problems in this church. There are indications that there are problems of disunity in this church. And let me just point that out to you. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Well, let's look. Let's hold that for a moment. Let's turn to chapter 4. The last chapter speaks in verse 2 about two women. I urge you... I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true comrade, I ask you to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement and so forth. So apparently there were two women who at one time had served with the Apostle Paul and helped him, and now they're not serving, they're fighting each other. And Paul deals with that before the letter closes. Back in chapter 1, and we saw this last week, Verse 27, he writes, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. That is to say, live the way God wants you to live as citizens of the kingdom. And we saw that last week. So that whether I come or see you or remain absent, I may hear that you are standing firm. But watch this, in one spirit, not just standing firm individually. I want you to be a unified church. I want you to stand firm. I want you to be like soldiers on the front line. Dig your feet into the dirt and you stand firm and you don't compromise, but do it as a church with one mind, and then he says striving together, that is to say being offensive, being aggressive for the faith of the gospel with one mind, striving together, stand firm with one mind, then strive together. Now he just mentions unity there, and it indicates to me that there was a problem with disunity, and if you are the Philippians and you're reading this for the first time, what you have to be asking yourself is, well, how do I do that, Paul? How do we stand together? How do we get Euodia and Syntyche and this church together? How do we get those people who are having conflicts and strife with one another? How do we bring them together? And that's why chapter 2 is found in the book of Philippians, because in chapter 2, Paul will explain to the Philippians and he'll explain to us how to produce a unified church. And I think it's a warning for us 
Like, like I said before, I'm not addressing any one issue in this church. We don't have a problem with disunity, but the potential is tremendous to have all kinds of conflicts when you bring people who know what they believe together. And so we want to understand how to produce a unified church. Now let me explain how this fits into the overall scheme of Philippians. The theme of Philippians is joy. Everywhere you go, there's some truth about joy, rejoicing. That is the theme that runs throughout this book. And we know from experience that there are certain things that rob us of joy. There are certain things that steal our joy. And so Paul begins in chapter 1 and then chapter 2 and 3 and 4 to explain how they could rejoice and they could could keep these other things from stealing their joy. In chapter 1, he deals with joy and suffering. Why? Because he was in prison and they were concerned about him and Paul writes to them and he wants them to know when you are in the midst of changing circumstances and you are in the midst of suffering and you are in the midst of adverse uh, things going on in your life, you can still rejoice. I am, and then he gives some reasons why he's rejoicing. The gospel is advancing. The Lord is being exalted. And the principle there is that what steals our joy is when we are self-centered. When you are preoccupied with yourself, that steals our joy. And so instead of being self-centered, you need to be Christ-centered. Be concerned about his interest going further, going forth, advancing the gospel, exalting the Lord. So joy and suffering takes place when we're Christ-centered and we are concerned about his interest above our own interest. In chapter 2, the theme seems to be joy in suffering, not just joy in suffering, I mean joy in service. Chapter 1 was joy in suffering, but now it's joy in service. Why? Because when I put others ahead of myself, I will rejoice. You know what steals my joy? You know what steals your joy? When you are concerned about your own rights, when you are concerned about exalting yourself and your rights above other people, when you have to have your way, when you have to have your uh, right expressed, but when you put others first and when you put your own interests aside and you take the place of a servant and you serve them in the interests of others, you'll have joy in your heart. Just the opposite of the way the flesh works. Okay, so that's how this fits in. So what we want to begin to learn this morning is how does a church of about 400 people with 400 different ideas and backgrounds and perspectives become a harmonious unit that glorifies Christ in order that we might be a testimony to the world. Now, we're not going to learn psychology this morning. We're not going to learn a bunch of rules on how to put this together, but we're going to learn from Paul's instruction to the Philippians. And so if you're taking notes this morning, we want to look at three things that produce a unified church. This morning we'll only look at two of them, but that's the, the whole message here. Three things that produce a unified church. We're going to look at the motives for unity. What is it that motivates me? What is it that, that gets me going? Why should I be unified? Then we're going to look at the marks of unity. How do you know when the church is in unity? How do you know that when the church is clicking and when there's harmony? What are the evidence? What are the marks? And then we're going to look, Lord willing, we'll look at the methods that produces this unity. And then actually there's one more truth to it. We're going to look at Christ Jesus as the great model of unity. Paul uses him as an example. So let's begin this morning by looking at the motives for unity. If there's going to be harmony in, 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 in the church and a spirit of unity in a congregation, people have to be properly motivated to do it. You understand that God is, is really concerned about our motivation. What is it that motivates us? Why should we be unified? I want you to understand it's not external rules. There's a lot of churches that, that have a whole list of rules on what you should do and what you shouldn't do and uh, all kinds of things. It's not externals. 
It's internals. There's proper motivations. There has to be some good, solid reasons why I should get along with others and not want to assert my own rights. Now, in verse 1, Paul gives four arguments for spiritual unity. That is to say, he appeals to four spiritual truths that ought to motivate us to live in harmony with each other. Now, these are solid, solid theological truths. However, when you read verse 1, you might not understand that. So let me read it, and then we'll explain it. Chapter 2, verse 1. If therefore there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion. Now, let's stop there. You say, wait a minute. Solid theological truth? He keeps saying if. If there's any. If doesn't sound solid to me. Well, let me explain. There are a number of different ways to use the word if. You could say, if you do this, then that would be good. That is to say, if you possibly do this, then I think that would be good. Uh, That is a doubt. That is a question in your mind. But you might also say, I might say to my wife, I'm going to the store after church. And she'll say, if you're going to the store, then pick up some milk. There's a sense of certainty there. It doesn't mean if you happen to be going, I told her I was. So since you are going, that's probably a better word. Think of since, since you are going. Or if you have to think of if, then think of if you are going and you certainly are especially if my wife tells me I'm going, I certainly am. If you are going and you certainly are, then do this. That's, that's the thought here. It's a, it's a, a, a word of certainty. Now, Gene Getz, in his very uh, good and, and little commentary on Philippians, but very good, says this, and I thought I would read it to you because it's helpful. He says, to get hold of what Paul said, suppose that you have attended a Christian college that has meant a great deal to you. In fact, you came to know Christ there. The Christian professors helped you learn to live for Christ in a mature way. You met a wonderful girl there who became your wife, or you met a tremendous man who became your husband, and you were given the necessary training to prepare you for a life vocation. Now you're graduating. As you do, I approach you and I say, if you've been encouraged at all in this school, if you appreciate what you've learned, if you are grateful for the environment that enabled you to meet a fine Christian person to become your mate, If you are grateful for the preparation for a life vocation, then be sure to support this school with your prayers and financial resources. Do you get the picture there? If these things are true, and the assumption is they certainly are true, then there's gratitude expected from you. Then there's a response that's expected. Now that's what Paul is doing in verse 1. It's a fourfold argument that we need to consider to remember the next time a disagreement comes up. Now, I want you to understand that that is a natural That's not normal. When you have a disagreement, a conflict with somebody in the body of Christ, uh, the last thing you and I think about is doctrine, right? The last thing I want to think about when somebody disagrees with me is doctrine. Four great theological truths. But I want you to know those are the motives. That's the way Paul presents it. The next time you're thinking of having a disagreement and asserting your own rights, you need to stop in your mind. In fact, it would be good to memorize verse 1 and say, but wait a minute. If there's any consolation in Christ, if there's any love of the Spirit or consolation of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, then I'm not going to fight with you. That's what needs to go on in our minds. It seems counterintuitive, but one way to guarantee a life of emptiness and frustration is to insist on having your own way. A lot of fingers get pointed at the me-first generation, but there's nothing new about putting ourselves first. 
On the other hand, if we follow Christ's example of selflessness, we open up the floodgates of joy. Thank you for joining us today for Verse by Verse with Pastor Teacher Steve Kreloff. Pastor Steve has been serving since 1981 at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. These Bible classes of the air are produced by Verse by Verse Ministries. We are a faith ministry supported by caring listeners who are first faithful to their own churches. If you would like to hear today's class again or catch up on any previous lessons, stop by our website, versebyverseradio.org. You can listen online or download any of them for later. That's versebyverseradio.org. To listen to the entire message from which today's program came, you can order an audio CD. Just call us at 727-441-1714. Leave your name and a number, and we will call you back during weekday office hours. That number again is 727-441-1714. One day when I was a supervisor in the factory, two of my best workers were having a serious disagreement about how to handle a project I had assigned to them. It looked like they were on the verge of a fist fight, so I called them both into the office. I asked them if they knew anyone who was more dedicated to excellence than the person standing next to him. It was like they suddenly snapped out of a trance. Once I reminded them that they were both after the same goal, they were ready to listen to each other. We need more of that in the church. In the next verse-by-verse, Pastor Steve will begin to share with us four encouragements to unity from Philippians. We'll see you then. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.